Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Good morning. Oh, man, one person's awake. I like it. Nice. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us this morning on Palm Sunday. I'll talk a little bit more about this in, in just a minute. Uh, but, but if you are new or you're just joining us, welcome. So glad to have you. On the chairs, I've got a couple of quick announcements for you. On the chairs, there are these Connect cards. Uh, we'd love to hang out with you so much that someone will get back with you within 24 hours. That's how much we want to take you out. And so uh, fill one out, leave it in the offering basket, or take it to the back Connect desk, uh, and, uh, and we'll, we'll hook it up. Uh, in addition to that, as you were coming in, you should have been receiving some, some Easter invitations. And so please take one, take them all, pass them around to your friends, your family. Uh, we're not only going to be celebrating Easter Sunday or the resurrection next week, but in addition to that, we are going to be having a Good Friday service excuse me, this coming Friday at the Old Church Winery. All of those details are on that Easter invitation. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up uh, or load it if it's on your phone or device. We're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 14. Uh, We're going to be in verses 17 through 21, and then 26 through 31. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we have them in the rows uh, that you're seated in. That's our gift to you, or please take one and please use it. If there aren't any on your rows, also in the back Connect desk, there'll be some. Now, with all that being said, as you're flipping to Mark, let me kind of catch you up or let you in on all the things that are going on for us this week, and in particular this morning. Uh, So if you've been with us for some time, we have been walking through a sermon series in 1 Peter. We're going to be landing the plane in 1 Peter in a couple of weeks, Uh, but in light of Holy Week, we're taking a break. Uh, Hence, we're finding ourselves in in Mark chapter 14 this morning to observe Palm Sunday. Further, we're going to look at uh, what Jesus meant when he cried out, it is finished on Good Friday, and then we're going to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday, and then we'll jump back into 1 Peter. Uh, If you've missed any of those sermons, they're all online. You can check out the website for that. In light of Palm Sunday, uh, we want to make a big deal about it because this is obviously a large piece of redemptive history, in particular throughout the life of Christ. And it does have implications for you and I. So that's one of the reasons we take time to observe Holy Week to walk through occasions like Palm Sunday. And in addition to that, Holy Week is a a cultural value here in the valley. And so we want to do our best to observe it as biblically as possible. And therefore, here we are. So with all that being said, if you're unfamiliar with Palm Sunday and you want a little bit of, of historical background on why do we call this Palm Sunday, oftentimes Palm Sunday begins with what is known as the triumphal entry. Uh, you can look at, I think it's Matthew 21. This is where Jesus uh, is uh, traveling to Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he is traveling into Jerusalem on a donkey, people are coming out. His disciples are meeting him as he comes down the Mount of Olives, and they are laying down all of these palm leaves, these palm branches before him as he makes his way to Jerusalem, making his way to Jerusalem to inevitably and ultimately be handed over to the authorities, be falsely tried, falsely uh, uh, accused, and ultimately and finally executed uh, by crucifixion in between two other criminals. And so as he makes his way into uh, Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier, uh, people are laying palm branches or palm leaves in front of him. And, and you, you read in Matthew 21, as they are quoting the Psalms, they are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, may, may God be the glory, Hosanna, Hosanna. They are shouting, uh, ultimately recognizing him as king. The palm leaves that are being put down before him. The color green signifies victory. And so they are chanting victory, victory. He is here. He is here. He is ultimately going to deliver us politically. (laughs) That was part of their intention. 
About four days later, another crowd formed, another mom mob formed, and as he is being tried, this mob four days later then started shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. See, on one end, and you had one group of people that was quoting scripture and screaming, Hosanna, he is here. We are recognizing him, not as the messianic king, but as someone who would ultimately deliver them politically, who would create political revival, who would disrupt the current political system. And then four days later, you have another crowd who absolutely and utterly hated him and wanted to find anything they could to call it to attention so that he would finally be crucified and would be no more. And so that's part of the history of, of Palm Sunday. And, and oftentimes, and we've done this before, we walk through Matthew 21. Today, I'd like to take a different approach and not necessarily look at Matthew 21. I wanted to find ourselves in Mark 14 because I believe Mark 14 is a wonderful opportunity for us to, uh, I guess, reflect on the condition of our hearts as individuals. I think as we walk through Mark 14, it may be fairly easy to say someone else that I'm thinking of should be in this, in this seat or in these seats listening to this message because this would be really good for them. And I just want to submit to you that this is not for them, but you. And so I pray that we would receive, uh, man, what Mark has to say for us with humility. And so this morning, I, I want to speak to us plainly. I want to uh, talk very openly about two concerns or, or two problems that you and I are ultimately faced with. These problems are partly because of culture, but they're also partly because we, as the church, don't always make it a priority to be distinct from culture. The two problems I believe we have when confronted by the truth, and I actually want to go back and restate that, that the, the two problems I believe we have, you and I have, when we are confronted with the truth, that's the context for these two problems. See, when we are confronted by the truth here, actually it's one of two problems that you and I face. The first one is that you and I get offended. We take offense when someone presents the truth before us because we believe we are incapable of that particular sin or behavior. Another issue that you and I tend to face is that when we are confronted with the truth, it's that we tend to deflect what is being presented before us, and we ultimately throw it up in the air and say, well, it's because we're human. Nobody's perfect. And really, all we're doing when we say things like that is that we are redirecting our sin, that we are excusing our sin, and that we are ultimately categorizing our sin. See, the truth is that you and I tend to believe that we're not as bad as we think. We're not as bad as we think. Now, I'm not saying that we can't and don't do good. But what I am saying is that we aren't as good as we think. We're just not as good as we think. There's, there's a reason self-help and spirituality, though those two categories are billion-dollar industries, because you and I don't really like to hear the truth because we're either offended by the truth or we like to deflect the truth and minimize sin. And so when we look at things like self-help and spirituality, at the end of the day, they just make us feel good. They have some good stuff in them. Maybe you like that chicken soup for the soul books. I remember my mom used to have those all around the house. I seriously thought that was like a recipe book for soup. It's not. I was disappointed. Right? And so the idea behind them is that we want to feel good. Because if we're faced with the truth, now we have to do something about it. Or we're actually faced with the ugliness and brokenness of our sin. When it comes to spirituality, part of the reason it is so attractive to us is because spirituality suggests that enlightenment and revelation comes from within. I figured this out. This is something that I kind of just concluded. 
But the truth about Scripture teaches us that enlightenment and revelation comes from God dwelling in us. There's a difference. What I love about Scripture is that Jesus boldly and lovingly confronts us. See, the Bible teaches that sin is rebellion against God. It's a willful pursuit of our desires and a rejection of His will. Further, the Bible teaches that sin is far worse than we think. However, the good news of Jesus is better than we imagine. So, as we walk through Mark 14 this morning, I would submit several questions to you. The first one is, how well do you really know yourself? How well do you really know yourself? How well do you know the condition of your heart? Remember, the heart is deceitful. John Calvin once wrote that the heart is an idol factory, that it constantly produces and pumps out idols, something else that will satisfy our desires apart from the lordship of Christ. How well do you know the condition of your heart? And finally, and I'm going to ask you a ton of questions this morning, and finally, what is your motivation for following Jesus? What is your motivation for following Jesus? As we look at Mark 14, I've broken it up into three sections, but really we're going to be looking at two categories. We're going to be looking at the condition and failure of man, that is you and I, and the faithfulness of Jesus. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to read Mark 14, and then I'll dive into our time. I'll pray and then we'll dive into our time. Beginning at verse 17. So Mark writes, and when it was evening, he came with the 12, that is Jesus. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Skipping ahead to verse 26. And when they had sung, excuse me, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, And Jesus said to him, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times." But he, that is Peter, emphatically, or said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. God, as we come before you, as we come before you to to worship, study, and hear uh, your word, Lord, I pray that I would be set aside. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work among us, that you would be present and at work. God, I pray that hearts would be transformed this morning. That hearts would be transformed because we are receiving your word. We are broken by the conviction of our sin. And because we so desire our eyes to be fixed upon Jesus. God, I pray that you would be glorified in this time. I pray that this time would be, serve as worship and just would be beneficial for us in our pursuit of you as we learn more about you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Y'all ready? Okay, here we go. All right. 
we're going to look at the first section. That's verses 21, or excuse me, 17 through 21. Uh, we can look at this as Jesus and Judas, or uh, I've titled this A Heart Far Removed. There's a couple of things I want us to notice about the character of Judas as we look at Mark 14. I'm actually going to take you back in a minute to verse 3 in the same chapter. But I want us to look at a couple of things about the character of Judas as we learn a little bit more about Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Judas was, his role in this team was kind of like the treasurer. He's the one that kind of all the money funneled through and uh, he's the one that sorted it all out. And he was the one that took care of money that was coming in. Additionally, Judas was motivated by money, or he was motivated by greed. And so at this time, let's take a quick break, go to verse 3. All right? In verse 3, this is what Mark writes. And while he was at Bethany, that is Jesus, in the, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask, appointment of pure nard, very costly, that's important, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted? For this ointment could have been, uh, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and give to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. One of the guys that scolded her was Judas. So she pours out onto Jesus this very expensive perfume. She may have had it saved for a special occasion. She pours it off on Jesus. And one of the things that Judas is accusing her of, he's like, why would you do that? We could have sold that to give to the poor. And so what he is doing is kind of a play on words in the sense of, man, we could have sold that and I could have pocketed some of that while serving the poor. And so his intention was greed. And then in verse 10, right, we see, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. If you read the other Gospels, Matthew and John and Luke, they are much more detailed than Mark. And so if you know this part of the story, this is where Judas goes out to the chief priests and the religious leaders of the day, and he ultimately tells them, I know where Jesus is going to be. I can hook him up in exchange for money. Now, how much was it? 30 pieces of silver. Right, which is about three grand in our day. Right? And so as he does that, we are given a glimpse into his character. That he is motivated by greed. Now here's what I would submit to you. Here, remember I told you, I'm going to give you a lot of questions this morning. Here's the first one. Are we really anyone to judge? See, I think we can read about the character of Judas and then we can get very self-righteous and maybe we could even get angry and say, how could he? He's the one that betrayed Jesus. I don't like Judas. But your motivations for serving Jesus, well, better yet, let me take a step back. Judas's motivations for serving Jesus was greed. Are we really anyone to judge? Maybe your motivation for serving Jesus isn't greed, but maybe it's self-ambition. Maybe it's your own pride. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's to look better than others. Whatever that is, whatever your thing is, you can insert it. The motivation for serving Jesus is blank. Who are we to judge? You see, when we take a look again at Judas. Judas was a disciple. He ministered to others. He walked with Jesus. He witnessed miracles and spoke of the kingdom of God. By our standards, he was a good person. He was a good person. And when looking at the life of Judas, here's what I can conclude, that even a good or religious person can have a heart far removed from God while saying and doing all of the right things. 
That's what we can take away. That even a good and religious person can have a heart far removed by God while saying and doing all of the right things. See, the Bible teaches that we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Every one of us. That our hearts are in rebellion to God from day one. And it's not that we can't do good. People do good all of the time. It's that we are enslaved to our sin by nature and by choice. And the only way for that to be undone is through the work of God in us, that he would resuscitate our dead hearts so that the scales would fall off and that we would see the glory of God as we are confronted with the truth and the gospel. And as we believe in him, those chains are now broken. So, how well do you know the condition of your heart? How well do you know the condition of your heart? We can look at the character and even the life of Judas in this section and feel completely convicted, maybe even isolated. But I would submit to you that it doesn't end there. That Jesus is the ultimate pastor. Let's look back at verses 26 through 31. This is what Jesus says. He says, Truly, I say to you, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then he later says, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. See, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our wandering, and fully knowing that, Jesus presses in and provides us with an opportunity for repentance. He didn't call Judas out by name, yet he could have. He didn't tell the other 11, homeboy here is going to do some really messed up stuff. He doesn't single him out. He doesn't call him out in front of the other 11. But he puts the question on the table. Or he puts the statement on the table. One of you is going to betray me. One of the 12 is going to betray me. He puts it on the table as an opportunity for repentance. And he does the same thing with you and I. He's putting it on the table. An opportunity for you to repent of your sin. And the other 11 weren't off the hook. Because once he said, one of you is going to betray me, what was their response? Is it I? Is it me? They began checking themselves. They began checking their hearts. So he provides them with an opportunity for repentance and an opportunity for a heart check. It's like right at the table as they're having the Lord's Supper. He's like, okay, right here, you and me. Here's an opportunity for repentance. Here's an opportunity to check your heart. Church, what is it that you need to repent of this morning? Not at lunch. Now, what is it that you need to repent of this morning? Well, what is repentance? Repentance, the word literally means changing direction. It is taking our eyes, removing ourselves from our sin, and placing our eyes and fixing our eyes on the person and work of Jesus through faith. That's what repentance is. And so Jesus, who is the ultimate pastor, provides an opportunity for repentance and an opportunity for a heart check. He provides those same opportunities for you and I right now. And as I mentioned, the 11 aren't off the hook. As we read through the gospel accounts, we know that Judas didn't take that opportunity and bailed. He went and did his own thing. And so now we can look at Verse 26, and I felt this way earlier this week. I wonder if you feel the same, that as you look at the table, as Jesus is reclining with the disciples and he gives them an opportunity to repent, he gives them an opportunity to check their hearts, I wonder how many of them afterward, as they saw Judas leave, they wondered, whoa, man, I'm glad that wasn't me. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Sucks, right? Like, I wonder, I wonder what they are thinking about in that moment. 
And I wonder if you and I, I know I did, I wonder if you have those same thoughts. Man, I'm not like Judas. I'm so glad I'm not like Judas because I would never do those things. I would never betray Jesus. Let's look at our friend Peter. Beginning in verse 26. And they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is at night. They're in the Mount of Olives. They're singing a hymn. They're ultimately walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where in just a couple of hours, the Roman guard is going to come and arrest Jesus. And as they're singing hymns, Jesus drops a bomb on them. He says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to bail. As soon as it gets hard, as soon as this starts going south, all of you are going to bail. And then to make it even more official, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes Zechariah 13. Where it says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the I in that verse? That is the Father. That God is saying that he is going to strike down his son, that he's going to pour out his wrath onto his son on behalf of man, on behalf of sinners. And so Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, the prophecy that's about to be fulfilled. And then enter Peter. And man, I wanted to focus on this because we've been in 1 Peter for the past couple of months. And so we've gotten to see this very bold and wise older pastor. Uh, we got to learn from him throughout, or we're getting to learn from him throughout 1 Peter as he is encouraging churches, as he is exhorting them to pursue humility, and he is encouraging them to pursue holiness, and he is telling them to stay rooted in the work of God in Christ for them. Here we get to see a younger Peter. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13. Peter like kicks open the door. He walks in and what does he say? He doesn't walk in, but this is what he says. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Other than putting his foot in his mouth, Peter does two things. The first thing Peter does is that he attempts to correct Jesus. I know that's what the prophecy says, and I know you're a really good teacher, but right now, I'm telling you, you're wrong. That's number one. The second thing he says, or that he does, is that he elevates himself above the other ten. What does he say? They're going to fall away, but not me. I got your back. I'm not going to betray you. I just saw what Judas did. I know what psalm we just sung. I am good. I am not going to leave you. Those dudes are. He elevates himself above the others and he attempts to correct Jesus. Here's the only, I don't want to say the only thing. Here's one of the things that we can learn about arrogance. Because that's what it is. Peter, is. Peter is demonstrating openly, again, his arrogance. And he, and he teaches us what arrogance does. And arrogance creates a lack of awareness of our capacity to sin. Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. You're going to scatter. And Peter says, they may, but I could never commit that kind of a sin. I could never betray you that way. He takes offense at the fact that Jesus is even quoting the Old Testament. How could you say that? He is taking offense to what Jesus is saying, and he believes that he is incapable of that sin. He is incapable of doing that. Arrogance does that. Arrogance creates a lack of awareness in our capacity to sin because you and I don't think we're that bad. You and I don't think we're that bad and that we don't think that we are capable of doing such horrendous things. I could never murder. Just put it out there. Something really horrendous. 
Tim Keller said, he said it really well. He said, the difference between someone who commits a murder and someone who doesn't isn't that the other one, the one who doesn't is better. It's that the seeds of that sin had just not been watered. The truth is that you and I just don't think we're as bad as we are. And because of that, how could we have, what's the point of knowing Jesus? But yet he lovingly and boldly confronts us with our sin. And he puts it on the table. And you and I just get offended. You and I get offended. It's the same thing that the chief priests, even if we like step aside from Peter, it's the same thing that the chief priests and the religious leaders of that day did. He put the truth on the table, so they crucified him for it. They took offense. And if that isn't enough, our boy Peter continues, blinded by his pride and blinded by the details of his sin. He keeps it going. So he says, Peter said to him, even though they will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Check it before we keep going. So we looked at arrogance. Now we're going to look at ignorance. Ignorance isn't just a lack of knowledge. It's also a lack of awareness. So Jesus, what else does Jesus put on the table? Jesus puts on the table the details of how Peter's going to betray him. He puts on the table the details of our sin. He says it right here. Truly, I tell you this very night. When? Tonight. Before the rooster crows. What are you going to do? You're going to deny me. How many times? Three times. He's putting the details on the table and Peter still misses it. So at one point, we looked at how we get offended by sin. We are incapable of doing that. And then the details of our sin get put on the table. And what's the next thing we do? We deflect, we redirect, and we look at something else. Because Peter does that here. He says, but he said, that is Peter, emphatically. The word emphatically implies that Peter kept doing this. He didn't just do this twice. Peter wouldn't shut his mouth up about this. He says, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter ignores the details of his sin, continues emphatically, and misses the hope of Jesus. He misses the hope provided by Jesus. I wonder if you caught it. We're going to look at that at the end. But here's what else. Here's where all of us get leveled out. All of us get put on the same playing field. Because we can look at Judas and say, well, I would never betray Jesus. You can look at Peter and say, oh, Peter, bless his heart. Oh, he's putting his foot in his mouth. He gets offended by sin. He even redirects it. But this is what Mark writes at the end. And they all said the same. Mark was there. He's putting himself in that same group. He's one of the disciples. It's, it, it's as if Mark is telling us, we all said the same thing. Jesus put all of these things on the table. He put our sin on the table. He gave us the same opportunity that he gave Judas, and we didn't take it. We didn't believe. We thought we were better. We thought maybe because we were the elite. We thought this applies to other people. We, we thought we, this wouldn't apply to us because we've done all the right things. We say all the good things. And yet all of us ended up denying him. All of us ended up abandoning him. All of us ended up running away from him. I wonder if Mark would emphatically add that he was the disciple later on in the gospel of Mark that when the Roman guard came, he got so scared that he took off his robe and left naked. That was Mark. That's how afraid he was. It wasn't just that the other ones hid. It wasn't like Peter who walked at the side hoping that nobody would see him. Homeboy dropped his robe and ran naked because of how afraid he was. That's what he's writing. How many times have, let's just put it this week, 
man, have, have the details of your sin. Hey, man, I, I've seen this. A, a brother or a sister has come before you. Hey, man, I, I see this in your life. This is, this is sin that I think we need to address. How can I serve you? What, what do we need to do? And you believe, man, I am incapable of doing that. That's not me. How dare you tell me that? I know, I know, I need to work on it. I get it. Or we begin to redirect it. Thanks for that. I really appreciate that. But let me tell you what you need to work on. Rather than stepping in to the uncomfortable part of responsibility and ownership, we redirect, we take offense. And just like the apostles, just like these, these 11 dudes, we missed out on the hope. Because there's hope in this passage. Because we read through Judas and it's like, man, I don't want to be like that guy. We read about Peter and it's like, that's me. A lot of people could always associate with Peter. And then we miss the hope. But before we look at the hope, I want to look at denial. Well, what does it look like to deny Jesus? Peter openly yelled it. I don't, I don't know that man. That's, I don't know who that is. How do you and I, how does this apply to us today? How do we deny Jesus? written a couple of things. I'm sure these are not the only ones. But I think sometimes we deny Jesus when we don't act like we belong to him. It's one thing to act like a Christian on Sunday morning. It's one thing to act like a Christian at community group. It's one thing to act like a Christian at youth. It's one thing to act like a Christian in these areas of ministry. But outside of those areas of ministry, we don't. The work of God for us in Christ is a convenience. It's a comfort. It's not salvation. So we deny Jesus. We deny Jesus in how we act. We deny Jesus when we willingly stay silent about him. Now you might think, well, doesn't 1 Peter say, be zealous to do good works? Yeah, he does. He says, be zealous to do good work. And then he also says, when given the opportunity, speak. Give a defense about the hope that's in you. Elsewhere throughout Scripture, we're constantly seeing the apostles saying, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach him crucified. And we stay silent. We stay silent because uh, we don't love him as much as we say we do. We don't love him as much as CrossFit. We don't love him as much as our work. We don't love him as much as these other things. We deny Jesus when we believe that obedience is something we do so that we would receive something else in return. That's also called self-righteousness. That you obey so that you get something. So at that point, we deny Jesus because our relationship with him is transactional. And he hasn't lived up to his end of the bargain. I've done all the right things. I've done all the good things. Where is my share? So we deny Jesus and our misunderstanding of obedience. We deny Jesus when we think that Christ is insufficient. I'm not saying that Believing and following Jesus means that everything's going to be okay. That, man, life is going to be roses and butterflies. It's, no. In fact, the Bible doesn't even teach that. The Bible teaches that suffering comes with it. So let's just put that on the table. I'm not saying things are going to be like restored, like we're good to go. Man, the scales did fall off and I love life. Sometimes life is going to be really hard and really messy The question is, do we believe Christ is sufficient in seasons like that? Do we believe that Christ is sufficient in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships? Maybe in the season that you got going on right now, is Christ sufficient? We deny Jesus, husbands, when we ignore our brides. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter. Gentlemen, when you ignore your bride, you teach a sermon that says Jesus ignores his bride, the church. It's because I'm tired. It's because I got to go to work. Yes. Welcome. You're going to be tired. What are you teaching? What are you preaching? Wives, 
We deny Jesus when you gossip about your husband. And I even question saying this part, but I, I'm going to say it anyway because I have a mic, right? And so wives, right, when you gossip about your husband and you do not biblically submit to him. I added that. Biblically. Now, if you're like, why would you say that? Let's step out here real quick. We defined biblical submission as a denial of self, a willing denial of self for the benefit and blessing of others. That's what biblical submission is. And when you don't biblically submit, you teach a sermon that Jesus isn't worth following. Singles, those of you who are not yet married, you deny Jesus when you believe that his role is to complete your craving for a spouse. Getting married doesn't complete you. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is a status that is made complete by the finished work of Jesus. And so when you believe that you have to be married in order to be complete, you preach that Christ is insufficient. And so you deny Christ in that way. Parents! (laughs) You deny Christ? We deny Christ. I'm a parent. We deny Christ when we elevate our kids. They're more significant and more glorious than Christ. And so we elevate our children. Yeah, that also teaches a sermon that Christ is insufficient and that you have to be the one that becomes Savior. We also elevate parenthood. I'm not saying parenthood is not hard. I'm not saying that but it is also not God. Parents, you deny Jesus when you don't teach your children about Jesus. You save it for the pastor. You save it for the youth leader. You save it for the kids' ministry. Those are ministries, not programs. Discipleship is founded on relationship, not programs. The role to disciple your children onto the glory of Jesus and teach them about Jesus and hope that they would be arrows that would be sent off far than we could ever imagine begins with you, parents, with you, not with me, not with our kids' teachers. It begins with you. And let me just submit this. It is hard. I get it. Because everything is always pulling us in different directions. And we got this and we got that and we got extracurricular activities. And how do we do this? Sometimes I don't have an answer. In fact, a lot of the times I don't have an answer. Yet it is a biblical priority for parents to disciple their children. So what are you giving your attention to? I often hear parents say things like, well, we have conversations about right and wrong. That's great. Good. You're teaching them about the law. Super cool. How often have you talked to them about Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the seriousness of sin? How often do we have those conversations? And we could say much more. We can say much more about how we deny Jesus. In fact, maybe some of us, including myself, don't want to talk anymore about how we deny Jesus. And the last thing that really just leaves it, or where we, where we end up is, Man, we've talked about how we deny Jesus. We talked about how we get offended by our sin, how we redirect our sin, how we think we're better than people like Judas. Where is their hope? Where's the hope? It's in verse 28. I don't know if you guys caught it. Let's go back up. Here's the verse. I'll start where, where Jesus begins talking. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, 
After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's such a baller way of saying it because Peter didn't even catch it. Maybe you and I didn't even, I know I didn't. I've read this a thousand times. And be like, stupid Peter, right? Like that's all we think about. But then when you read verse 28, it tells us a little bit about it. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It tells us two things. Jesus is talking about the resurrection and restoration. Jesus knows our weaknesses and our frailty. He's talking to them about them. And even though Peter dismisses the details about his sin, dismisses uh, sections like verse 28, he dismisses a bunch of things and keeps it going and the disciples back him up. They miss all of those things. Jesus is already thinking about the victory. Jesus is telling them, I will see you when I'm raised from the dead, when the Holy Spirit raises me up. I will have conquered sin, Satan, hell, demons, all of those things. My victory will be called throughout every single realm. No human force, no spiritual force won't hear of my victory, and I will see you in Galilee. That's what he tells them. And what happens in Galilee? Well, you go to John 20, Peter's restored. The guy who denied him, the others who left him, Whereas Judas, he doesn't call him out. He gives everybody an opportunity to repent. In John 20, he calls Peter out in front of everybody. He says, I want to have a conversation with you. And he restores him in front of everybody. How does he restore him? By asking him three simple questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? And it breaks Peter's heart because he recognizes that he is a sinner in need of grace. And Christ in that moment, by looking at him, tells him, I know, I've conquered it. You got it. What else happens in Galilee? Matthew 28, they are given the great commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Make sure you teach them everything that you have observed and that I have commanded. The same guys that bailed, he gives them the commission. He gives them the commission. God's motivation, hear me on this, God's motivation in spite of our failure is His faithfulness toward us, not our faithfulness toward Him. That's why we miss verse 28. Everybody's going to scatter. Peter's pushing back. Jesus puts the sin on the table. He still pushes back. But then there's this one little section where he says, after I am raised up, I will see you in Galilee. God's motivation is his faithfulness toward us, not our faithfulness towards him. Jesus knows our weakness and frailty, and he throws himself into the mess that is our lives to pursue us and reconcile us back to God. Listen to a much older, more experienced Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter wrote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. The same Peter who was sticking his foot in his mouth, who was denying him and pushing back, and not all prophecies are cool, bro. He's the one that got restored. And here he is as an older pastor encouraging churches undergoing persecution. The faithfulness of Jesus, church, is an opportunity for repentance. It's an opportunity for repentance. And so if you don't know Jesus, he invites you to come to know him. He offers you salvation. He offers you redemption. He offers you a heart change. A heart change means new desires. It means that every part of you is redeemed. So you get a new heart and a new mind. I'm not here to guarantee you money or cars or happiness. I'm here to guarantee you redemption and restoration. And if you are a Christian, repent of your arrogance, of your pride, of your ignorance, and remember his faithfulness toward you. That 
is your motivation for loving him and loving one another. Today, some of you need to have conversations with one another. Don't waste it. I need to pray about it. We just preached on it. You're good. The joy found in Christ's faithfulness. I got tongue-tied because I got caught in mouth. I'll say that again. The joy found in Christ's faithfulness begins with the repentance of sin. Let's pray. God, when we read through, uh, when we read through Mark, I know, and at least I can speak for myself, I've read through this passage several times. And I think I'm just thinking the macro, the macro details, this big story. I can't believe Judas betrays you. I can't believe Peter sticks his foot in his mouth again. Yet God, through the message this morning and through the study this week, through these details, you've confronted me and I pray that you've confronted your church with our sin and the condition of our hearts. God, I pray that you offended us. I pray that you offended us because the gospel is an offense. That Jesus, you stepped into human history to save sinners. That you died on our behalf so that we would be given a chance to, uh, for redemption. That we would be reconciled to the Father. Your gospel is an offense and I pray that we were offended this morning. I pray that we would take ownership and step into the uncomfortableness of our sin and repent where necessary. Submit ourselves before you, cry out to you, lament over our sin, and then fix our eyes on the person and work of Jesus. God, I pray that we would not look at Judas and Peter and think, man, I'm glad we're not like them, but that we would actually see ourselves in them. And that we, unlike Peter, would find hope in your resurrection and the restoration. God, as we continue our time of worship and walk into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this is where we give you our stuff. God, this is where we give to you sacrificially, cheerfully, uh, and faithfully so that your gospel would be advanced. Uh, in our city and in our community, but so that we would also care for one another. God, I pray that we would be good stewards of these finances, that they would bring you much glory, and that we would use them to equip uh, the saints to the work of ministry. God, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Amen.